This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how to have an active spring at any age with nutraceutical formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll talk about attachment style and your relationships with mindfulness expert, Tracy Sograti. We'll learn about reconstructive surgery with Drs. Ron Samoji and Wakas Jalil. And lastly, we'll talk about living with psoriasis with Daryl Scott. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. A study by researchers from UCLA, Australia, Ecuador, Germany, and the Netherlands and the UK found that people around the world signal others for assistance every couple of minutes. The research, which examined behaviors in towns and rural areas in several different countries, revealed that people comply with these small requests for help far more often than they decline them. The findings suggest that people from all cultures have more similar cooperative behaviors than prior research has established. Scientists at the National Institute of Health, NIH, have identified new genetic risk factors for two types of non-Alzheimer's dementia. These findings were published in Cell Genomics and detail how researchers identified large-scale DNA changes known as structural variants by analyzing thousands of DNA samples. The team discovered several structural variants that could be risk factors in Lewy body dementia, known as LBD, and frontotemporal dementia, known as FTD. The project was a collaborative effort between scientists at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes, NINDS, and the National Institute on Aging, NIA, at NIH. Depression due to psychological stress affects millions of people worldwide. However, most of existing antidepressant drugs are slow, prone to development of resistance, and have severe side effects, demanding the need for more effective treatment options. Delta opioid receptors, DOPS, are known to play a key role in the development of depression and similar diseases. Previous studies have revealed that DOP agonists, substances that bind DOPs instead of the regular compound and cause the same effect, have improved efficacy and lower side effects than most existing antidepressant drugs. Recent studies have identified KNT-127 as a potent DOP agonist with significant antidepressant activity, quick action, and minimal side effects. However, the underlying mechanism of the action is still not well understood. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. 
Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and as everybody who listens to the show knows, he's a regular here. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Thank you for having me on again. I think one day you might say, oh, we've had enough of this guy. Let's just get rid of it. Never, never. The, the Bussin family motto, and I don't even know what it is in Latin, is more is better. More is better. <laughs> so, which might explain my weight gain, but there you go. So I found out something about you that I did not know, and that is you are very into and involved in Ultimate Frisbee. So I got to find out about this, Gordon, because we're going to talk about being active today. I would love to say I play ultimate frisbee, but no, I'm way too old for that, for running around like that. You ever seen those guys run around? Yeah, I know. They're just sucking wind most of the game. Yeah. So that's definitely, but what it is, my daughter plays it, my son-in-law plays it. So that's, I, I sort of back-ended into it because of that. I have a first cousin who was actually on the Canadian national team. Okay, good. He might know my son-in-law because he just got the job to coach the national team. Oh, Gordon, it's a she. It's not a. It's not a he. It's a she. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he, I think he's coaching the men's team, though. Okay. There you go. Not the women. So how did you come to to love the sport? Explain. Well, what happened was that my daughter got involved, so that's how I got into the game, into the sport. Now, love is too strong a word, I would say. Okay. Right? <laughs> you know, but I, I am involved with it to the point now where we are one of the sponsors of the Toronto Rush. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, we again, back-ended into it. It's like a lot of things in my life I see to sort of walk into it, not from planning. I think most people find their way. I mean, you know, who would have thought when I was in law school all those years ago that I'd end up having a talk show and, and having a magazine, right? You just don't know, you don't know what the world's going to present to you. Where you, know? leads you, that's for sure. Yeah. So anyway, with the rush, one of the things is that when we were talking to them, there's several things I realized is that, you know, these kids, whilst they're young, right, they need a lot of um, help with things like recovery, because every, after every game, everybody's stiff, everybody's sore, yep. right? But the same basics for the Toronto Rush would be the same basics that you'd apply to your general weekend warrior, for example, mm-hmm. right? So, again, recovery is big. So, after a game, everybody's achy and so on. So, that's because the wear and tear in your muscles, you have inflamed muscles, etc. So, you can, there are things that people can use to help with that, right? And there's a lot of natural products that will help with it, the stiffness, the achiness, and also what I call the recovery, right? So before we get to the recovery, though, mm-hmm. let's talk about preparation. Is there anything we can do before we hit the field? Oh, definitely. I mean, you have to remember, a lot of these kids, and I call them kids, right? A lot of these kids are in very good shape, Yeah. right? But in spite of it all, they still have to look at things like protein intake, mm-hmm. right? They still have to look at mental preparation, Right, so good night's sleep is also definitely what what they would have to look at. Yep. Right, they have to look at things like endurance. Right, increase their endurance. But endurance is not something that you can get out of a bottle. No. Right, endurance is something that you have to work on on an ongoing basis. Right, but there are several things that people can take to increase their endurance. Right, and endurance comes because you you build upon it. 
right? So there's several things that we, we would recommend to them. One of it is a product we manufacture called EnduraStrength. Right? It's an adaptogenic formula. And what it does is it increases the ability to perform. Mm-hmm. Some of the herbs in there have been tested individually in experiments in the lab. And one of them, for example, is ginseng. And what they found with ginseng is that rats, if you give them steady supply of ginseng, they do better in what's called a swim test. And what basically what the swim test is that they give the, the rats some uh, ginseng and they have another one where they don't have any ginseng. And what they found was that the rats that have the ginseng can swim for longer periods of time. Okay. So anyway, and there are several, formula, several herbs like that, which we have put together in one particular product called EnduraStrength, which will do the same job as that. So these are some of the things that they will take. Is this impacting sort of lactic acid buildup, or is it doing something else? We are not sure how this actually works. Right, because you know, unfortunately, a lot of these tests they look at the overall picture as opposed to getting down to the mechanism of how how it works. Okay, you know, I'm very active, even even post surgery. What I've been dealing with recently, I'm still got back on the horse theoretically, and I'm back to doing weight training and other stuff like that. The type of stuff that you're talking about isn't just for the young frisbee players, right? It's it's for everybody, right? Everybody will benefit from this. Right, your weekend warrior will benefit from this because one of the things that people don't realize is that, for example, if I'm pushing weights, yep. and normally I do ten reps and three sets and I'm done. Yep. Right. If you increase your endurance, you might do ten reps and three and a half sets yep. before you're done. Well, that extra half a set, if you do it over time increases and you will build stronger muscles and you'll be able to do more reps, right? So this is why endurance is important, right? And you can use bigger weights later on just because your body gets used to it, used to doing the extra weight, right? And this is just a little extra oomph to push you over the edge. Got it. All right. So let's talk about the types of issues that come up when you're, whether you're a weekend warrior or whether you do it all week long or whether you're new to to athletics or, or, you know, your doctor has told you you got to get off the couch. One thing is sort of energy levels. So what can we do about that? Well, the energy level, again, can lead more to the endurance level. Sure. So there's several things that people can do for energy levels. One, a mental thing is that you've got to be in the mood to do this. Right. right? Yep. And I don't know the number of times I'm saying, ah, I just don't want to go run. Right. But, you know, once you start, you go. Of course, right? yeah. And it's a mental thing. So once you're, you're in that mental space, you go and your energy levels pick up, right? So that's the mental aspects of it. But the mental aspects are controlled a lot by rest and relaxation, mm-hmm. right? Whether you're stiff and sore from the day before or the weekend before type of thing, right? Yeah. And again, so there's that. And then your level of physical activity, you know, how much your nutrition levels, Right. What I'm trying to say is that it's not a single magic ingredient. I've always said it's a process. Right. Right. So with these things, like things like simple as your level of B vitamins, right? Mm-hmm. Some that will help with your energy levels. Right. There are several herbs that <clears throat> that people have used that will also help with energy levels. Things like ashwagandha. Right. And even if your energy levels are great, but you're aching, right? Mm-hmm. That puts a damper on activity. Right. So this is where recovery is also important. 
So there are herbs which people have used that have anti-inflammatory effects. So things like turmeric is a classic example. Yes. There's several other Chinese herbs that people have used right, that help with the achiness and the stiffness and the soreness. Now, the nice thing about the herbs versus um, something like an Advil or something like an, um, a Tylenol or so, the quantities that you're using is, is lower, so you don't have the side effects. Right. You don't have to worry about, oh, if I take this anti-inflammatory herb, I'll end up with a ulcer, right? Yeah. Or liver toxicity issues, right? So th- this is why the herbal component is also important. But again, you know, it's one of the things I, I would like to advocate is that when people take these things, they, they look at a whole bunch of different things. They look at your trace minerals, right? Mm-hmm. They look at your, your macro minerals, like your calcium, your magnesium, right? There's not one single magic ingredient where you say, okay, I'll just take magnesium and Bob's the uncle, I'm good to go. Well, while we're talking about magnesium, though, like I, I've been told by people, like, you know, when you work out regularly, you kind of cultivate friendships with people who are like-minded. Some of the people I've been exercising with swear by by taking magnesium and zinc for recovery purposes. Is there anything to that, or is it just more power to them if it works for them? It's more power to them, but you know there is something to that in the sense if you're deficient, it's a good thing. But what I'm trying to say is that when you got deficient of, say, magnesium, yeah. that's not the only thing you're usually deficient of. True. Right? Yeah. Usually you're deficient in a whole bunch of other things. So this is why I say sometimes you need to get a product that has all of these things all in one. Right. Right? And so there's several products that we make that are like that. Right? So, you know, one of the things I'm talking about is Cineplex. It has magnesium, it has calcium, it has selenium, it has zinc. Mm-hmm. Right? It has all those things in there. It also has things like glucosamine, which is helpful for the joints. Right. Okay? It has the B vitamins. It's all in one. Right. And one of the things is that because I've been preaching a larger, taking, a, it's not a process, but taking a, a multiple product, it's very difficult to just pop pills. So if, I'm, if somebody says magnesium and zinc, right, yeah. then I, I take a, a magnesium pill, I take a zinc pill, I take a calcium pill. You, you know, pretty soon I'm looking at a handful of pills. It's very difficult to consume a handful of pills. It is. It's much easier to have everything all in one. Just take it, a scoop, mix it in some water, mix it in some juice. And Bob's the uncle, and you're good to go. It covers a lot of things, like, like for recovery. It covers things for energy, right? Mm-hmm. And th- those are some of the major issues, for, even for your weekend warriors. Now, you also have to eat well, okay? Even in spite of all this, if you are not having a good enough protein intake, because you need protein to help you rebuild some of the damaged muscles. Of course. What about, you know, for me, I love getting outside, right? So now that the weather's finally nice, or nice-ish, uh, I want to be outside as much as possible. But I also suffer from allergies. Is there anything we can do to help so that, like, if we're trying to exercise, we're not, like, our nose isn't running or our eyes aren't watering the whole time? Again, there are several things that people have used, and it depends on the, your level of severity. Okay, there are people, you can get away with using things like thing and nettle, or stinganettal and also quercetin. Mm-hmm. You have to take large doses of stinganettal quercetin. Some people take large doses of vitamin C in with this, with some citrus bioflavonoids. Okay, I find that works for a lot of people where the allergy situation is not horrendous. Mm-hmm. There are people, unfortunately, where you 
to go out there. Their nose is dripping like a faucet. Yep. Eyes are itchy like crazy. You know, in cases like that, you go on medication, right? There, yep. there, so there's a, what I'm trying to say is there's a time and place for everything. What I find, though, is if you take the supplements, the amount of medications you might need is a lot less. So let's talk about that. The fact that it's getting warmer out and people are being more active, do they need to up the dosage of the multivitamins if they're taking them? Like, does the heat or, or the environment impact the need for more, or is it is it more it, of a static it proposition? It on your level of activity. Okay. John Q. Public, weekend warrior guy, probably will, won't need as much as, say, the guy who runs a real serious athlete, right? Yeah. He probably won't need as much because, again, your level of activity, yes, once it goes up, it doesn't go up like three times or four times. Whereas the guy who is a serious athlete who's training for the Olympics or something like that, you know, his workout compared to my workout is going to be very, very different. And, you know, and usually if you just say taking a multivitamin, you know, doubling up is not a bad thing because usually most multivitamins is, I say, it's a lot of everything, a lot of different items, but um, not enough of any item because you don't have that much space in a, in a capsule or in a tablet. Got it. So you could double up or triple up and not a problem as far as being overdosing or anything like that. So I have time for one last question. And, and Gordon, if you're not playing Frisbee, are you into the hottest sport? Are you playing pickleball? I wouldn't know what pickleball is if it got up and smacked me in the head. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'm I'm, I'm telling you, man. Even pickleball players need to recover. I need to get endurance into them. You are 100%. Even those people would need some of these things. 100%. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me again, James. Take care. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss attachment styles and your relationships on The Tonic. Managing type 1 diabetes isn't easy. You have to make countless choices every day. Life just got a little easier. Medtronic's Minimed 780G system is designed to give you more control with less effort. Integrated with continuous glucose monitoring, it's the only system that automatically adjusts insulin delivery every five minutes based on glucose levels. If you're currently on multiple daily injections or an insulin pump, find out more about the Minimed 780G system at www.medtronicdiabetes.ca. The system uses SmartGuard technology. Individual results may vary, and some user interaction is required. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at www.sograttiyoga.com. 
Sograti Yoga on Facebook or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm great, Jamie. So nice to be here. So we're talking about attachment style, and I don't even know what that is. For somebody who prides himself on knowing just about everything, I don't know what that is. So tell me what it is. Yeah, maybe that was part of the reason why I picked this topic. To maybe. Throw you a curveball, right? Stump the host. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so attachment style, it, it really stems from the work of this um, this great researcher and psychologist, John Bowlby, which, you know, you might remember from way back when, studying psychology in school. Yep. And he really mapped out sort of the relationship between a caregiver's response and a child's behavior. And so what he found was that if children are raised with caregivers who are kind of misattuned, right, so maybe temperamentally mismatched or if, you know, and that's sort of best case scenario and then, you know, in terms of things not going quite right or with caregivers who are, say, unresponsive or at worst neglectful or abusive, that these children will then develop these protective mechanisms to cope. And that, you know, that totally makes sense. And often, relationally, these protective mechanisms contribute to something called attachment style. So there are these primary relationships that we have, say, with our caregivers or our family of origin, you know, the people who took care of us when we were little. And so that kind of sets this foundation, but it's not the only piece. And I want, I really want listeners to take that in because then as you move through life, the quality of all of your other relationships or the kinds of bonds, that's really the word I want to use, the kinds of bonds that you develop contribute to your attachment style, your way of coping when you're in emotional or relational distress. So that's really what attachment style is. It's what do you do, you know, when conflict arises? What do you do when you're in relational distress? Whether we're talking about with a partner, with colleagues at work, or even with friends and acquaintances. And what you do to protect yourself when there's conflict or relational distress tends to stem back to these attachment styles. I understand that there are four different attachment styles. Can you describe? You understand, what, right? So what are they? How are they sort of meted out? I'm actually going to go backwards here. So a secure attachment style, right? Sort of like the holy grail of attachment style, the one that we're aiming for ideally, is it occurs when a child, or it starts to occur when a child has a responsive caregiver, somebody who is attuned to their needs, who essentially provides a safe emotional space for that child to land, right? And that means it's an environment where it's okay for a child to have their feelings and they're taught how to regulate their feelings and to care for themselves emotionally through the relationship, right? So through examples in the relationship. And what happens later on with that secure attachment style is the person it's much easier for them to find the balance between, say, appropriate boundaries and intimacy or vulnerability, right? So intimacy or vulnerability doesn't really feel threatening. The people with secure attachment, they tend to communicate about difficult topics in the relationship with much lower anxiety. So it doesn't feel, uh, for those people, it doesn't feel relationship threatening to have conflict or to communicate about something that, say, they're unhappy about. And likewise, they tend to be more optimistic about the relationship. And because they're because they're more optimistic and because things are less threatening to them, they, they're just more explicit about their needs. And then conversely, you've got these three other styles. 
so with an anxious and preoccupied style, so that's one, anxious, preoccupied, Mm -hmm. the person is obviously a little more anxious about the bond. So when they are in relational distress, and that's when this style shows up, right? So not when things are going well. It's when in distress. This person tends to need and want a lot of reassurance, maybe affirmation or attention. They're quite fearful of abandonment. So when conflict or any kind of problem arises, their mind will go to, oh my God, this is the end. They'll catastrophize. They'll be afraid of abandonment. And because of that sort of negative orientation, they might even unconsciously magnify conflict right? Because they're so pessimistic or fearful about the relationship, they will then tend to magnify conflict. So in relationally, what happens when someone is with uh, someone with an anxious, preoccupied style, usually when distress shows up, they will become quite demanding and pursue their partner or, or say their friends. And that can sometimes be off-putting. Mm-hmm. Another style is dismissive avoidant. Okay. So this person, when they're in relational distress, They become very aloof, Jamie. Mm -hmm. They become wary of a relationship. Oh, you think this is me? (laughs) No. They may keep their personal details to themselves. Yeah. They might pull back when things become too intimate or even vulnerable. They're extremely busy people. And when they're in relational distress, they might tend towards avoidance, right? Complete avoidance or passive. It's it's sort of an unconscious passive aggressive behavior. So they'll sort of say what they mean, but not say it. So sort of say it through their behavior. So that's the dismissive avoidant. Now, the fearful avoidant, and this is, I would say, the lowest percentage, right? So the fewest amount of people. And this is typically a style that is associated with, you know, adverse childhood events, early childhood trauma. And these people are kind of ambivalent in relationships. And that means that they might oscillate or jump back and forth between both anxiety and fear. So they long to be close to people. They'll pursue, pursue, pursue. They'll be fearful of abandonment, seek a lot of reassurance and affirmation. But then once they get that, they will then push people away because they're so afraid. And that inconsistent behavior and and likewise the difficulty with boundaries can lead to really chaotic relationships which is quite tough because the person on the other side, you know, it's very confusing. They might not understand how to interface with the person. So overall, those are the the sort of four styles. And what we're aiming for is the secure style. Okay. But it sounds like these patterns are ingrained. So when you say what we're aiming for was the first one that you mentioned. Yeah, secure. Secured. That suggests that you can change your attachment style. Is that true or are they fixed? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really like the most important point we needed to get to today. These things, I mean, certainly our experiences lay a foundation, right? So whether it's with our early caregivers or with the relationships that come after. However, with awareness, so it starts with insight and awareness, which is why I'm always, you know, touting how important mindfulness is. We can become aware of the protective mechanisms that we've developed. So once we're aware, 
aware, okay, you know, I tend towards anxiety in a relationship, and when I'm in distress, I tend to pursue and seek, you know, seek affirmation, then that might also lead to the awareness that there's a bit of insecurity there. So with anxious preoccupied, there tends to be a bit of insecurity. And the person can work on that, which will then lead to the ability to have more secure bonds. Likewise, the person who is dismissive and, and avoidant is simply doing that to protect themselves. And they can, you know, with mindfulness, with therapy, with insight, with journaling, there's so many different ways you can do it. You can start to work on yourself so that being in relationship, bonding, being vulnerable, being intimate, no longer feels so threatening. And in this way, securely attached individuals, once people work on themselves and become more securely attached, their self-esteem grows, they have a more balanced view of their relationships, and they have more relationship resilience. And so one positive experience tends to set off a cycle of more positive experiences, and they become more and more secure. Does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose. I, I guess what I'm thinking of, like the relationships you seem to be talking about, mm-hmm. I would think these are like with partners or with, yeah. or at least, I don't even know, if it, like, would it go beyond that? Like you're not talking about acquaintances, right? You're talking about... It's a great question. So first and foremost, definitely romantic partners, right? Like right, partners, yeah. most certainly. That's where it's going to show up because these are the people that we end up living with. Sure. And so then we're going to be most activated and most triggered by them. However, I would say that these patterns will show up in any intimate relationship with someone that you're spending a lot of time. So kids, so kids even. Absolutely your kids. And this is why, this is why attachment patterns will tend to reproduce themselves. Yep. So we'll do it with our children and then think about having a business partner as well. Right. Right. So you might have like a work spouse, right? Sometimes we joke about having a work spouse, but that's absolutely it. That person will trigger you in. So the same coping mechanisms will show up. And likewise, with really intimate friendships, you know, I know over time, you know, as I'm edging towards 50, I've got like one or two friends who have, you know, been there for the long haul. And those are the people where, you know, if something happens, that's where these really old sort of feelings kind of come up where I want to I have the urge to protect myself. Not really so much with acquaintances, though. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think about like how these patterns would play out. It, it would have to be manifest in a more meaningful, close relationship, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is, I think as you get older, you tend to have fewer relationships, certainly post-COVID. So those relationships you do have, I think, I presume, would be more intense. Yes, absolutely. And an interesting fact about that, I was reading some research on this actually the other day, and as men get older, they tend to have fewer relationships. Yep. For women, they tend to reach out a little more than men do. But overall, the number, you're right, it's certainly less than when we're in our 20s and even our 30s. And I'm, I'm noticing that for myself even now. And I suppose it's just a, it's just a competing interest on our time and the pressures. You know, perhaps there's a need for more intensity, right? To be seen more clearly as we age. Makes sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. That was Tracy Sograti. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss reconstructive surgery on The Tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Ron Samoji is a Toronto-based plastic surgeon. Having trained at the University of Toronto in plastic and reconstructive surgery, he went on to complete two fellowships in Melbourne, Australia. Each of these fellowships taught him new and innovative techniques and honed the unique cosmetic surgery skills he's brought back to his practice here in Toronto. Dr. Ron has been on full-time staff at North York General Hospital and Women's College Hospital since 2014. He maintains an active research interest in both cosmetic and reconstructive surgery and has recently published journal articles and book chapters on breast reconstruction, surgical safety, and breast augmentation. Dr. Wakas Jalil is a highly trained and experienced plastic surgeon in both reconstructive and aesthetic plastic surgery. He had the great privilege of training in both Canada and United States, which allowed him access to world-class education techniques and innovations. He studied in both Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and his passion eventually took him to New York and the prestigious Lenox Hill Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Fellowship Program for Breast Reconstruction and Aesthetic Surgery. Upon completion of his fellowship, Dr. Jalil was recruited back to Toronto, where he was brought on at North York General Hospital, specializing in the reconstruction of oncological defects with expertise in breast reconstruction and skin cancer treatments. Since starting his practice, he has maintained an active interest in research, being a lecturer at the University of Toronto, and more importantly, teaming up with Dr. Samoji to create a one-of-a-kind aesthetic and reconstructive clinic. Welcome, doctors. How are you? Amazing. Thank you for having us, Jamie. So can you uh, tell us how your training in reconstructive surgery and your various areas of expertise how that factors into your cosmetic practice. Of course. So uh, I'll go first here, uh, Jamie. So it's really important to have both aspects, especially when you're training as a young plastic surgeon, because if you can see the worst of something, chances are you can even just make something that's mildly in need of improvement, just slam it out of the park. So when we're training, we see head and neck oncology defects, we see breast cancer defects. And so when we see how intense and brutal some of these reconstructions can be, when we get a patient that comes in for either a routine you know, breast augmentation surgery or even just like something as simple as a face and neck lift, that isn't something that is so scary to us. I think what I would add to that, in addition to what Kaz said, is the concept of dealing with things that maybe you haven't seen exactly that before. And so in, in reconstructive surgery, especially today where so much of the reconstruction is done in the immediate setting, in other words, at the same time as, let's say, the cancer, the tumor, whatever it is, is removed, is you essentially walk into a room and of course you've prepared and you've planned and you've talked to the other surgeons, but you walk into the room and you've got something that you need to now reconstruct using available parts, using materials, using all the different technologies that we have to really restore normal form and function for that patient. And so there's an incredible creative element to it and really the concept of having principles that you then apply to each everything. I mean, every single day, what we do is completely different than the day before, and it's very hard to plan for it. It makes it very, very exciting, and it, of course, makes it very, very rewarding when it works out, which fortunately, most of the time it does. Of course. So, Dr. Jalil, what is microsurgery and how does it fit into this picture? Yeah, so I'm going to try to explain it as best as I can in layman's terms. Well, I hope so, because we're all laymen around here except for the two of you, so go ahead. Basically, microsurgery is a technique. We use the aid of a microscope and some specialized tools in order for us to perform this. Typically, at North York General, we use microsurgery in our efforts to reconstruct a breast. So a common procedure that we do is we take tissue from the abdomen, commonly uh, a little bit spare tissue if you're a mom or 
uh, mom of two or three or several kids. And we take that tissue and we mold it and create a new breast out of it. Now that doesn't happen by magic, right? So everything in our body needs blood flow. And so we take just the skin and fat and not anything else. And we transfer that to the upper part of the chest. And we have to connect the blood vessels to something in order for it to live. So in this scenario, we use the microscope to connect nerves, arteries, and veins. People are often confused by how can you suture with, you know, needle or thread that's like smaller than what you can see with your eye. And so that's where the microscope is is really, really helpful because some of the sutures can be extremely tiny. And obviously it takes a tremendous amount of training to really get good and hone in it. But luckily we're really good at it. And, uh, you know, our success rates now are uh, well over 98 to 99%. If you're hooking up all the arteries and veins, et cetera, I would imagine that's incredibly time consuming. There are many, right? It's not like one or two when you're doing a breast, I would assume, right? Yeah. So commonly we have to get one artery, one vein, and sometimes there's some specialized techniques where we need to get an additional vein. But, you know, these aren't short procedures. There aren't like day procedures. Most often we usually take, you know, one side can take six hours, five hours if we're doing both sides and commonly can even take seven to eight hours. So we really have to have our Wheaties in the morning. I bet. All right. What are the types of cosmetic procedures that you are seeing more and more in your clinic for for people who are in their 40s or 50s or 60s? That's a good question, and I think it's probably changed as we as we may all or starting to be aware of, you know, with all our access to Zoom and all the virtual things that we're still doing. And so we're we're certainly seeing a lot more facial surgery because that's what people are looking at all day in the screen and noticing. You know, for our practice specifically, we do a lot of massive weight loss surgery. So patients that have gained a lot of weight over life, or sometimes it's just secondary to pregnancy and childbearing and things like that. But anyways, lost a lot of weight and have a lot of loose skin or areas that are resistant. And so we see a lot of those patients. And the reason we're seeing more of those now, we think, is because people are at home a lot more and they're able to work from home. And so the recovery from some of these procedures is a little bit longer and people just couldn't take the time before not only to lose the weight, but also to have the surgery and recovery. And so nowadays when people can take a week or two off at home to continue working just virtually, they have a lot more time for that kind of recovery. When you talk about recovery times, I'm just recently recovered from surgery, and I can tell you it was a much longer haul than I thought it was going to be, even though everybody warned me. You know, they said, Jamie, you know, you're not going to get back to normal in a few weeks. This is going to take months. And sure enough, it's taken months. What type of recovery periods are we talking about when it's reconstructive or or plastic surgery? I think what most people would call it. Yeah. So we as plastic surgeons are actually obsessed with recovery. Like it's something that we study routinely over and over again and something that we're constantly constantly getting back, uh, like getting better and better at using these reconstructive surgeries that I've described to you. These were procedures before that sometimes patients were staying, you know, a week, maybe a week and a half in hospital. And now there's just routine. Like we have our protocols, we get them out on day three, you know, they're probably up to speed by four to six weeks. Like these are things that are like tremendous feats of accomplishments. And we're just really reducing the recovery into such a short kind of timeline. Now on the flip side of that, the aesthetic side, we also are just as obsessed with recovery and some of the surgeries that Dr. Samoji's already mentioned, specifically with massive weight loss or even mommy makeovers, these are procedures that we're really melding one, two, three, four procedures all in one day. Although it makes a huge difference and it's a absolutely tremendous feat of success in addition to that, that we can do something in six to seven hours and really head to toe, totally change somebody's life. And sometimes that's just a day procedure. Sometimes they stay overnight. Like these are things that people are literally going home the next day with. 
Hmm. I think. I'm envious. Given my recent stay in the hospital, that sounds pretty amazing. So when it comes to elective surgery, obviously there's still risks, right? So what are some of the complications that can occur? So that's a good question. And of course, depends on the type of surgery that the patient's having. But I think, you know, what Wakas said, plastic surgeons are obsessed with everything around the surgery as opposed to just the surgery itself, which, you know, I would say all of our surgical colleagues, all of us are obsessed with the surgery. But we spend just as much time thinking about everything that happens around the surgery because most of the surgery we do is elective one way or the other. It's it's lifestyle surgery. You can't be off for extended periods of time and you can't have high complications. If you've got a massive bowel operation you may be familiar with, then yep. you know the complication rate is what it is. Of course, we want to limit it, but it is what it is. For us, we have to do everything we can to minimize those complications. So I would say the things that we deal with most commonly are scar related. That's the thing that p- bothers patients. It's the things that bothers the surgeons. We're obsessed with the scarring. And so when scars don't end up the way we expect or plan them to, that's probably the most common. And it's the thing we really work hard on. Depending on the size of the surgery, if we're really doing large areas, then things healing a little bit slower and patients needing to have bandages or special garments for extended period of time, that's probably the second most common thing that we obsess over. And with every passing year, those get more and more straightforward and the complications get lower and lower. When we talk about a phrase like post-operative care, what do we mean by that and what does it look like? Yeah, so I think that's something that's really important to patients. And I really just talk about four tenants and one is just monitoring. So at our uh, clinic, we are really obsessed with monitoring every detail. So we have text messaging services, email services, direct communication with our nurse to make sure if there's any issues that we are kind of alerted to it right away. And then the thing that patients actually ask about the most is pain management, right? Doctor, am I going to have pain? Is this going to be painless surgery? So as good as we as plastic surgeons think we are, we can't do painless surgery. Yeah, I was going to say, yet. I don't know if that exists. But <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. But we can get pretty close to it. So we always use a scale of one to 10 on terms of the pain scale. Sure. Of course, we can't get zero, but if we can get you in between that one to two scale, that's pretty good. And of course, if we can avoid the seven, eight, nine out of 10, the disaster scenario, we, we do all attempts to get that. And then like Dr. Smoji already mentioned, there's a lot of things related to your dressings and your wound care and your follow-up appointments that are really important. So we make sure that we have that all set out either with documents that you can read beforehand so you're familiar with it, or even just knowing when your post-op appointments are week one, three, four, and six. Time for one last question. And I don't know whether both of you want to answer this or not. It's kind of like, you know, what's your favorite ice cream color? But do you have a favorite procedure or is there one that you're known for? Like where you sign your name inside or anything like that? Well, I'm not going to disclose the signing part, but uh, the <laughs> and that's a really, really tough one because we love, we're so lucky. We love what we do every single day. But I'm going to go back to the massive weight loss. I mean, these patients have made such an incredible commitment to their lives and changed things around. And to be able to be a part of that and a team member now to help them be comfortable and look the best way they can look or the way they remember themselves looking, it really feels like we're just part of them. And they're also, they're big procedures. So we, we build these relationships and these patients are like patients forever or friends or people that we see all the time. And so we really love that part of it. I'm also going to cheat a little bit, Jamie. <laughs> Mine certainly is going to be mommy makeover. So, you know, reversing some of the effects of uh, having children, I think is really important to some women, especially when they've completed their childbearing years and they're not familiar with the body they have now and they want to be really 
really close back to what their pre-pregnancy kind of look was. And we get to do it all in one setting as well. It's similar to massive weight loss, we take four to six hours and we can do almost like a head to toe change. So it's the multitude of procedures that's my favorite. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. That was Dr. Ron Samoji and Dr. Wakas Jalil. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Affecting over 1 million Canadians, psoriasis is a common autoimmune disease often misunderstood and stigmatized. It's likely that you or someone you love is impacted by this disorder. Today, we're going to speak with Daryl Scott, a Juno-nominated country rock music writer who has lived with severe psoriasis his whole life. Daryl joins us today to discuss and dispel the stigmas of living with psoriasis and how research and a new topical therapy has changed his quality of life. Welcome to the show, Daryl. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. So how has psoriasis impacted your life? you in so many different ways, but as a young kid, I started to get psoriasis just kind of on my knees and my legs. And of course, you're a young lad, you're playing sports, you're sliding into second base, you're wrestling with your buddies, you're wiping out on your bike. It's pretty easy to just kind of hide it or chalk it up to, oh, it's just from being a kid kind of thing, right? And yeah. I had a grandmother who had it really bad on her legs, and she would actually always lie to me and be like, oh, that's where I got bit by the shark. And as I got older, I kind of uh, realized that wasn't the case. And then when I got into my like later teens and into my early adult life, out of nowhere, it just kind of started spreading across my body everywhere, up my arms, all over my back, down my chest, and different things like that. And, you know, now it was a little bit harder to have to explain. And, you know, when you're you're younger and you're kind of in good shape and you're, you know, out at the beach or having, you know, a good time at a party in the backyard and it's summertime or whatever, you are kind of tend to take your shirt off. So then all of a sudden I started to become like a little self-conscious of like, okay, what is, you know, as it got progressed worse and worse it became like harder to explain so to speak or like you know you just kind of have to say what it is and people are kind of a little confused on like really like you never had that a year or two ago like how do you have it now and then you know from that it kind of gets into your brain and you start to think like oh maybe I should just leave the shirt on and then from there you're dating and you start having a, a partner and next thing you know you're you're wondering well what's she thinking while well, she's touching you and all these other things and it kind of just starts getting into, into your head a little bit and you kind of become your own worst enemy at that point then becoming a musician and starting to play on bigger stages i'm you know under these hot lights and i'm sweating and you're wearing your t-shirt and 
you know, you can see it kind of up your arm. It's glowing, and you're you're kind of thinking, what's everybody thinking in the crowd? Because at that point, when you're, you know, living that rock star life, you're supposed to be the guy that all the girls want to be with and all the guys want to hate kind of thing. And you're kind of getting into your own head again, being self-conscious of, like, oh, what people thinking? Can they even see it? Like, what's going to happen if I've got, like, a photo thing after and this stuff's showing up in the photos or whatever, right? Are people going to think you're contagious kind of thing? You start to kind of labor and kind of in your own thoughts that way. And, and really, I think the truth is, like, unless people are completely heartless, nobody's really paying attention or really care. Like, I don't want to say they don't care, but they aren't ridiculing you or thinking that you're a freak or anything like that. I think the biggest impact is your own mental impact and how you start to perceive yourself and start to deal with things on a daily basis that way. Yeah, that makes total sense. You mentioned that at a certain age, the psoriasis started spreading across your body. And I would imagine it would sort of spread to some areas that would cause even more discomfort, for example, like your stomach or where skin touches skin, like your armpits. Is that what happened to you? Yeah, like that type of stuff hard enough to deal with like if you've ever had poison ivy or poison oak or like bad bug bites or something like that it's like you know the doctor always says don't scratch it don't scratch it it's gonna spread don't scratch it so it's hard enough to get that mental strength and that capacity to be like okay i'm just it's got an itch just leave it alone leave it alone but then when the skin starts folding over it's constantly rubbing and it's like the worst kind of chafe or you know and it can create open sores like you know it starts to peel itself kind of open it can lead to a lot of different problems at that point and i mean depending on what area it's in for me like one of the biggest problems was actually on my stomach because as i got a little older i started to i guess had too many beers or too many big macs i'm not sure but my gut started to get a little bit bigger for a little while there so it would you know kind of fold over and you're on a stage and i'm playing with my guitar because Kind of like rubbing across my stomach as I'm kind of rocking out and then the other time like you know my belt buckle is digging in there and it's folding over itself and that's the worst case scenario is when you start getting it in those situations I mean I'm sure having it on your face or something like that isn't isn't a great thing either but that type of irritation, it lasts for 24 hours a day. You're laying on your stomach when you're sleeping or however, you know, your clothes, they rub over it. You know, you got a buddy who comes by and just give you a belly slap or whatever. It can just create a world of constantly trying to just ignore it. And I mean, if you've ever had to constantly ignore a mosquito or black flies or something, you, you know that it's not something that you can just ignore for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It gets a little interesting of that times for sure. I would imagine. People with psoriasis, they become self-conscious. Do you think that's an impediment to getting treatment? Like, do people feel comfortable speaking to their doctors and showing them the, the extent of the psoriasis they have? Well, I think is a big thing. When you walk into your doctor's office, a lot of the time, like unless it's the middle of summer or something, you could be wearing a sweater, you could be wearing pants, you're pretty well covered up. So unless it's in the really noticeable areas, they aren't going to know that you have it unless you tell them you have it or ask to be checked out. And I think with, you know, psoriasis and and a lot of other conditions too, a lot of people 
they don't realize how much you can trust your doctor and how much you can count on them and they want to hide things longer and longer and longer until it gets to a point where you know if it had been treated from the beginning you'd probably be in a lot better position than you are by waiting until it gets to the extreme level and i think one of the crucial things is having that open relationship with your doctor no matter what it is like knowing that when you walk into that doctor's office you're in a safe space and you're able to tell them everything that's going on and you're able to show them you know what's going on because for anybody who's young listening as you get older eventually you know you got to start showing them what's going on anyway you start having physicals and all of these things so it's better to just get comfortable early on and knowing that your doctor you know they're not there to laugh at you they're not there to hurt you they're not there to misguide you in any way you know they've sworn an oath to help you so allow them to help you by telling them and being completely 100 percent honest of you know it's in my hair it's down my back it's in you know my butt crack it could be anywhere and just be open and honest with them and allow them to give you a proper assessment and try and find the proper avenues generally they'll send you to a dermatologist who's a specialist and you know i'm very blessed to have a very wonderful dermatologist dr gooderham out of peterborough and if you're not communicating with them, then it, you're hindering them from doing their job. You really, again, got to get out of your own way and just kind of be willing to accept, okay, this is what's going on, and I need to be able to deal with it, and the person who's going to help me, I need to allow them to help me. Right. So I understand there is happy news. You're part of a clinical trial for a new topical medication. Tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, Zareev. How did you find out about the trial, and, and how's it going? Uh, yeah, it is Zareev. That is the name of the trial. And how I found out, again, was through my dermatologist, Dr. Gooderham. I had been using a different type of treatment called phototherapy, and it's basically a glorified tanning bed. So you walk into this thing, and you're standing upright, and it's got all these UV rays that are concentrated from the sun, different ones that help to basically bake the psoriasis, and they're really good forms of treatment same as the natural sun is but the problem with that is you can't just have this machine sitting at your house you have to go into a clinic to get the treatment and being somebody who's you know back and forth between nashville writing songs and on the road playing in a band and doing all these different things you know you might be home for six or eight weeks and start to see really good results and then you're gone for four to six weeks or something and you start to see all of that, you know, you regress and you start to see it all come back. So the minute that she told me there was this clinical trial and it was a cream, I could take it anywhere with me. I could rub it all over my body. Like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you could eat the stuff because a lot of the types of cream that are out there, they'll be like, do not put it on skin where the, the skin folds and do not put it in your like nether regions and don't do all that kind of stuff. So then you're, you're on multiple treatments anyway, where this was just one product that you could put all over your entire body. It had no steroids in it, which was great because, you know, when you start using steroid creams for a long time, then you're, you're getting stretch marks and different, you know, you start seeing your veins coming through your skin. And yeah. not only do you have psoriasis on your skin, you've got all these other issues that you're trying to cover up as well. So this product seemed like the perfect thing. So I was, I was 100% all in and I, I started using the, the treatment. And it didn't take long for me to notice results. And within maybe six to eight months of using the treatment, I had noticed that the majority of my spots were completely gone, like all over my back, my chest, all of those spots, they had been completely eliminated. There was still a few problematic spots, like my one spot on my stomach and stuff. 
but uh, it completely took all the itch away as well. So it didn't have me constantly thinking about it. Like, And once the itch was gone, then the thought of it was gone. And then I really didn't care anymore about the way it looked. Through all of this, one thing I will say is for anybody who's suffering from psoriasis is every day the medical field is constantly progressing and constantly coming up with new forms of treatment. And it doesn't matter if it's psoriasis or all different kinds of diseases, but it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is like a form of hope out there. Yep. And, and you really got to kind of go and look for that hope because it's not going to come to you and, and most likely. So that's where being open with the doctor is a good thing and being willing to kind of find a treatment that can work for you and stick with it. And, you know, at the end of the day, there is hope. And that, I think, is a huge thing because a lot of people, I think, give up on it and kind of give up hope and just feel like this is my life and this is kind of the outcome of what I have to deal with. You're so right. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Daryl. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Tracy Sograti, Drs. Ron Samoji and Wakas Jalil, and Daryl Scott. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine, which is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.